You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is Living Truth. We are so glad that you're tuning in today. If this is your first time listening, we are two friends who love to get together and uh, talk about the scriptures over maybe a cup of coffee or hot tea or glass of water or whatever. Uh, We have been going through the book of Jonah, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. But before we do... I gotta say hi to my friend. CL, how you doing? I am well. How you are got your, you? I'm doing well. You got your Batman shirt on? I do. And of course, we are actually recording this at night. This is a little change for us. Yes, it is. Yeah, so we have a couple of cups of coffee already in the system, ready to go, because after a long day of work, you gotta wake up with something. So anyway, I'm glad you're here, brother. It's good to be with you. And uh, we say greetings to all of our listeners all over the world. Yes, we do. Uh, I, I cannot express enough how much we appreciate them, John. We appreciate them very well, too. <laughs> you pull that off very well, my friend, very well. We we do appreciate everyone who's listening. We don't take anything for granted. We're just two friends that like to talk and conversate about the scriptures, and and here we have people listening, which is a, the, the coolest thing, and uh, we are so blessed uh, that you are listening to it as well. Anyway, so we have been talking about Jonah. We're going through the book of Jonah, we're going obviously very methodically, some people like to drive in the slow lane, <laughs> and some people like to honk at that person in the slow lane or try to pass him by. But I have no clue we are, to we whom are the, you are referring. We are in the slow lane today. Yeah. Well, anyway, so <clears throat> let me just do this. Um, we have a lot of fun, which you could tell, which we is do. it's fun. You know, it's 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 good stuff. Uh, we are in Jonah, and uh, Jonah is a prophet of God who's been called by God to go to the Ninevites, place uh, that is uh, uh, where the Assyrians ruled. And Jonah decides to go in opposite direction and disobey God. And we have been looking at uh, his uh, journey on the ship. And let me just you know just for sake of context, I guess. Let me just read from verse 4. We're actually going to pick up in verse 11, but let me just get a running start, okay? It says, Then the Lord Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, and we will not perish. Now each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And uh, then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? What, What people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. 
So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done this, or have done as you pleased, rather. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. I'm going to stop there because I think that's a good breaking point. Jonah is a prophet of God who decides to not do what God tells him to do. He runs the opposite way, gets on a ship headed for Tarshish, which could be as far as Spain. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq. And upon entering the, 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 the boat, God sends a storm. He doesn't get very far, but he goes to sleep. The men wake up. They figure out something is up. They figure something is there's a reason for the storm. And, of course, they... They get it out of him. They say, yeah, I'm, I'm the one. In verse 10, it says that they became extremely frightened because they, they knew he was fleeing from God, from the presence of the Lord. And they said to him, what should we do so we, this to you so that the sea will become calm? And that's kind of where we left off. So anyway, let's talk about it. You know, John, as you are at this stage in the story, certain things happen that you just don't expect. Uh, you're supposed to approach this aspect of the story with a certain um, sense of the drama. Right. A certain sense of the urgency of this moment. Right. And what you anticipate to happen, a humility, if you will. Right. Um, um, a, a, a repentance, a right. sorrow a trepidation is going to strangely and oddly be absent from this section of the narrative. Well, it's interesting that even Jonah admits he's the reason for the storm. And admitting that, as you're saying, does not equate to then him repenting and acknowledging to the point of like, okay, this is my fault. And the point of, you know, let's, he doesn't. It's like he doesn't admit. Doesn't. There's no repentance there. There's like, yeah, I, I'm reason for the storm, but you don't. You don't get the sense that um, I want to follow what God's telling me to do. And I think in that there is a a strange absence that you're going to see as you engage in the story of this concept of repentance from yeah. this prophet. Um, you're going to see repentance from the people you don't expect it from. Right. You're going to see response from the people you don't respect expect it from. Um, but from the very person that you would think you're going to see it, the author brilliantly shows you the reversal of roles right. and the reversal of respect so that uh, when the curtain is open, 
what is up seems down and what is down seems up. So you have to come to the story kind of with this anticipation. And the anticipation is expect to be disappointed and surprised because nothing is as it seems. Right. You You know what's interesting? It's sometimes... It's sometimes where, in this case, the unbelievers get it, and the believers don't. Right. I mean, I know people who are like that, where it's like to, uh, of, of God's desire in their life, they're supposed to go a certain direction, they're supposed to go a certain route, and they're going against that, and they, don't, they know they're going against it, but it's not obvious to them that they're supposed to stop and turn around and do a, you know what I'm saying? But to the person who's not even a believer person on the outside can say, oh yeah, that's obvious. You're supposed to go left when you're going right, and yet you keep going the opposite direction. It's like as if to say that sometimes, sometimes maybe we're so into, um, I don't know, there's maybe uh, not a close connection, but there's a, um, a, a, you forget that you're supposed to fear the Lord, right? You forget that it's God you're disobeying. And here's God's child who's disobeying. You know, it's one thing that it says that they um, became extremely frightened in verse 10. It says that then the men became extremely frightened, and they said, how could you do this? Because he said he was fleeing from the presence of God. Well, here's an unbeliever, not a believer in Yahweh at this time, who knows the response that's supposed to happen. You know you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to do that to, to you. Wait. We don't do that to our gods, and they're not the real God, you know? And here you're doing against the God who created the, the sea and the dry land, everything in it, and what? You know? Absolutely. At least at this point in the narrative, you get the sense that everyone knows that they're dealing with a deity. Right. Right? And, and not just any deity, but clearly a supreme, powerful deity who is going to be clarified by the prophet. The prophet is going to clarify which deity this is and going to highlight him as the supreme deity above all other deities or above all other gods. So that's going to come to the story. That's going to come to light. However, when that is brought to light, you don't necessarily see the response from the person who knows that supreme deity as you would expect it. Now, here's kind of how scripture uses this. Because there are times when authors within the biblical text will use the Gentiles as the shock of the story. Let me just refer to that briefly, right? Like in the Gospel of Mark. Yep, I know you're going. You you, in the Gospel of Mark, you're wondering, when is Jesus' disciples going to get it? When are they going to get it? Right. And, and you're wondering, when are the religious leaders going to get it? All of these ethnic Jews. And you're wondering, when is this going to take place? And yet, when you get to the end of the narrative, at the death of Jesus, practically, before the burial and resurrection, there's a centurion right. who doesn't necessarily right. altogether get it, but at least he knows this one was distinct and unique. This one was the son of the gods or of God. There's an ambiguity, but at least there seems to be at this point more than everyone else gets. And, and he didn't go through three years of seminary with Jesus. I mean, he's he's not walking with Jesus day and day and night, day and night, day and night, watching him do this thing. This guy comes out of nowhere and says, I have somebody that's sick, and I know that you can just say the word, and this guy's healed. And he gets it, and somehow sort of those in the inner circle don't get, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's, 
if it's maybe because we have expectations of what we want God to do and how to God how we want God to perform, and so we're blind, or how how God ought to do things or handle life, and so we have blinders because we're waiting for that to happen, not realizing the obvious thing. I mean, here's here's Jonah; he's a prophet of God. Um, sent to Gentiles to warn them because God cares for them as well, he loses sight of the fact that that the reason why he's chosen as a prophet and why his people are chosen as as the people of God are not to have a little club that says, oh, we have God and you don't have God. It's more of like, we have God and we, we're supposed to tell you about this God because this God is, is wonderful. You kind of lose sight of that, you know? And you, you kind of put God in a in the sort of in a, not a box, but sort of like you want him to follow your rules of conduct, you know? And sort of, and so you, you, you sort of become blind to what God really wants to do, you know. And sort of, I think you have that with, with the Gentiles here in Jonah, where um, they get it. In fact, they even, their question even says, "Well, what should we do to you that the sea might become, become?" They know that Jonah has the answer. We don't know this God. You know this God. Now, what are we supposed to do with you? <laughs> Can you imagine? Absolutely. You know, there's a few things going on here that are very intriguing. Like, for instance, the the again, the author is using literary genius here because when you get to verse number 10, D, what you have ten, is... Does, my Bible doesn't have 10D. Which one's 10D? <laughs> so, so this is this section is, is where it says... Is yours on the metric system? <laughs> <laughs> this is this section where it says, for the men knew yes. that he was fleeing from the presence of the Eternal One um, because he had told them. Now, what you have there is, is we would refer to it in, in the Hebrew text as two key clauses, right? right? So you have two purpose clauses. Right. Oh, oh, and and in, this, in this purpose clause, first of all, you have the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So the author is being very economical. Right. In other words, he's collapsing some right. of the information and he's doing that quite deliberately. But he chooses certain information to collapse. So we know that Jonah told them far more than we have recorded, right. but the author has chosen to collapse that information. And he's very economical with that information. But what he has chosen to give us, those two key clauses are directly associated with the question that they ask and with the answer that he gives. So it's like this. The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Now, we don't know what all he told them, but at least we know that he gave them some information. So in response to that, they ask their eighth question in the text. Now, remember, they've been asking us... <laughs> There's only twelve questions okay. in the book. Okay, I'm just saying you're you're counting you and and most of the questions are asked by the Gentiles, right? Right. And these questions are very very important. Right. And so when when they come into this question, they say, "So, w- w- what should we do with you?" Now, what's interesting is the nature of this question in the Hebrew text. They're not asking this. Even though they've experienced fear, right. and, and even though they are, are quite certain in their thinking at this stage that they're going to die, this is a f- forthright, transparent, sincere well, question. Right. They have no conclusion. They are really asking this man's counsel, given but, what you've put us in, the circumstance that you've put us in, what do you, ex- what, what do you anticipate? What do you expect? What do you suggest that we do? But aren't they drawing on their knowledge of their gods? You know, they're thinking... Well, if we did this to our gods, it's going to be punishable, and we're going to have to do something to appease that god. So, 
What about your God, Jonah? I mean, here's I mean, the, here's the assumption. The assumption is that they're gonna have to do something to this to Jonah to appease the Lord for that this to stop, and perhaps that involves killing him, taking his life, or whatever. Not knowing really God's whole purpose. In fact, you know, we'll get to this in a second. But they're assuming that their God needs to be appeased, and and or his God needs to be appeased, and it requires doing something to Jonah, rather than Jonah doing something, you know, like, what must we do to you? Rather than saying, Jonah, what do you need to do? Does that make sense? Absolutely. So they're, they're assuming that there's something that they have to do, which perhaps is still God guiding them. Because I think it's interesting is that later on, um, the point necessarily isn't, isn't even for Jonah to, um, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself on this because, uh, I'm thinking about when they start rowing back to the land, and it seems like that they have to go through this process of throwing him overboard rather than rowing him back, you know, that they have to go through this process of somehow him being tossed up over, over the ship as well. So we'll get to that in a second. I don't want to get him. My point is, is they come to it with an understanding of, of how they understand the nature of, of their deities and they say, well, maybe your God is the same way. Does that make sense? Yes. But I think it's interesting. What must we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? And they see a direct correlation between the storm and something that has to happen to Jonah, which is, you know, if looking at it from modern eyes, we would never say that. We would never say, you know, the reason why this hurricane is here is because you, brother, and, and we need to throw you to the sea gods and, and have the sea calm. You know, as a modern reader... We wouldn't read it that way. This is strange to us. We would say, oh, this is because the global earth changes are warming or something like that. The hurricanes are coming. Whereas here, they know there's a direct correlation between what they're going through and this man's actions. So it's a different perspective on, than like a, a modern reader would, would think. Yeah, I think that it's important to, to, to point out here, John, that when they say, what must we do to you or what should we do to you? that the nature of this question is kind of an interesting word that they're using, right? Yeah. That is being employed in the Hebrew text because this term is from the root asa, right. which means to do or, or to make. perform yeah. or to make, right? Yeah. But but the idea is they think some sort of act, right. some sort of possible performance or ritualistic um, expression must be made in order to bring some sort of appeasement to this God. So so it calls for, in other words, Jonah, your disobedience calls for some sort of act okay. on our behalf. Okay, let's, let's, let's pause here because this is a question that may come up with people. Because now that's Jonah. What about today? What are, are there examples where, I don't know, some event has happened because somebody was disobedient to God, let's say, and there's a direct correlation to a certain event and their actions. Is there, can this... Can this be seen today? Because, you know, we would, we sort of don't, um, we don't associate natural disasters or even maybe certain things in life. We maybe don't associate them with, oh, um, this is because I did such and such. You know, how do you know, let's put it this way, how do you know whether something, a storm or situation a person's going through is a, is God saying, Hey, I'm getting your attention, or is it just, oh, you just happen to be going around? Does that make Absolutely, sense? Absolutely, John. Because cause that question always happens. I think when I go through quote unquote storms or difficulties, I'm thinking, what did I do to deserve this, right? And can you pinpoint that 
oh, you're going through X because you did something over here. Right. Is there always a correlation? Because that's often a question that people are wondering, what did I do to deserve this, you know? Well, I think a few answers aid us in this arena, right? Uh, Number one, we mustn't um, um, undercut the reality of the Genesis 3 effect, right? We are in the framework of a fallen world, wherein just because of the nature of sin and the groaning of the planet, if you will, the, the, the pains of the planet, that there are certain things that are possible and probable within this sort of fallen system. So that's answer number one. Uh, Answer number two is that most certainly you can have a situation that uh, uh, comes upon you um, as a result of direct sin. Now, I want to give a caveat there. That when God is allowing something to come up on you as a result of sin, uh, his goal is not to be silent. His goal is to bring conviction whereby he might bring convincing so that you can separate yourself from the action that is causing or bringing about the discipline or the judgment of God. So you won't have, let's just, let me just paraphrase in response. You won't have to guess I mean, here Jonah says, it's because of me that the storm has come. He knows that this is a direct result. Whereas if you have to guess and say, well, maybe I did this, maybe I did that, you know, then perhaps it's not really a storm of, uh, you know, this of this magnitude or this type to, that's meant to correct you, or let's say, let's, it could be just a normal thing going through life, you know? Absolutely. But, but I think I, I need to give a few more here, right? Sometimes you can have storms in your life, not because you are walking against God, right. but because you are walking for God. You know, it's, it's, fu- it's funny because this morning, I, the first thought that had, I have crazy thoughts all the time. The first thought that came to my head this morning was about storms. I hadn't even looked at this text today, but the first thought was, the, the first thought that came to my mind this morning was sometimes God calms the storm. And sometimes God takes you through it. Um, but either way, God's with you, you know, and you can draw on him in, in the midst of that storm, you know. Sometimes we want to always avoid the storm, but we don't always, we won't always re- witness the power of God or the faithfulness of God if he always keeps preventing us from going through things, you know. It says sometimes he takes you through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Uh, not just to it or not around it. And we often want to avoid the stormy weather, the storm, the storms of our life, when when we would be able, we would not see the faithfulness or the hand of God or the power of God or the strength of God, had we not gone through it, you know. And so, as as human beings, we want to avoid all the storms we can get. But sometimes God wants to bring. I just think of Jesus, you know, with the disciples, you know, uh, he didn't. He calmed the storms. But oftentimes he was with them when it was really, really stormy before he calmed the storm. In other words, the the point that they were supposed to, to learn was, he says, oh, you have little faith. I'm with you. Yes, but therein is a correlative point to what I was That's suggesting. That's a fancy word. <laughs> <laughs> correlative. A, an associative yes, I point, right, that, that uh, uh, really does highlight what I was saying, namely this, that it is precisely because Job was upright, 
right. that the adversary wanted to undermine yes. him, right? In an attempt to undermine God. It is, pro- it, it is, it is exactly because the disciples were on mission. Come, right. let us go to the other side. Right. And they are doing ministry that the adversary wants to sort of cause a storm on the Sea of Galilee right. and destroy not simply the boat, but destroy the disciples. And what Jesus wants to teach them is that whilst on God's mission, you are under God's protection. Right. And so storms can come sometimes not because you're engaged in evil, right. but because you are engaged in righteousness. Right. right. Hear, hear what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I'm going to remain on at Ephesus, yes. right? Yes. Because a, a, um, a, a, an effective or an efficacious door for ministry has opened un- unto me and there is much uh, uh, adversity. Right. And, and, he, and he's arguing that, that he knows he's doing the will of God. He knows he's on the mission of God. And not only is that proven by God's great hand, right. but that's also proven by satan's dark interference you know what's interesting is is oftentimes we want god to prevent storms or rough seas but i i don't know i don't know about you but i think about about life you you learn who your friends really are when you have when you face rough waters you know there's some friends that stick with you um when it's convenient for them um when you have something to give to them. But then you have those friends who, when you are going through really hard times, they're the ones who, who call you up. They're the ones who come over. They're the ones who pray with you, who just be with you, you know? Um, that's the kind of friend we have in God, in Christ, um, that he's the one, he doesn't leave us, even when, when the storm gets stormier and the boat gets rockier, you learn who your friends really are. You learn how faithful God is in those times when everybody's gone and you have nobody else to turn to but God. Um, where your friends look at you silly and say, okay, I've had enough. I can only put up with you so much, but this is crazy. Well, we have a God who sticks close to us. Uh, the Proverbs said there's a, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? You know, And that's the way the Lord is. And I just I'm just thinking is that is that and not in Jonah's case necessarily, but in a believer's case, when you go through a storm, you learn of the faithfulness of the friend of, of, that we have in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ to us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And you remember that and that bond of friendship strength. Because, you know, it's one thing to be friends when you're out in the playground. It's another one to have friends when you're in the trenches and going through the thick of things, you know, and and you're sharing all kinds of dirty laundry and all kinds of issues that you're struggling with and dealing with, and they still say, I'm still here with you, friend. That's the kind of friend we have, and that's the kind of God we have as well. Um, anyway, so. And then there's a last aspect that, that I wish to point out, and that is storm due to affiliation or association, right? Yeah. I, now, yeah. now, now, this storm is dual in its effect, right. because on one hand, for it, now it's a matter of perspective, because on the one hand, this is disciplinary for the prophet, isn't right. it? Right. But on the other hand, they are brought into this through affiliation or association. Right. I mean, the man is on your boat, and in so much 
as he's on your boat, you're kind of caught up in his storm. You're kind of caught up in the whirlwind of chastisement. And so you can have storms in your life because you are engaged with someone that is either in disobedience or let's make it positive, or either is on a mission for God and the adversary would seek to attack you, which is not this context, but the context here is they are caught up in a storm of affiliation because this man is trying, not successful, but trying to run from God in disobedience. Okay, so we've been talking about maybe some of the reasons why you have storms. And then what do you do? Because, you know, know, it's funny because... Because last week, I'm just thinking about this. Last week at church, it was a very weird Sunday. Uh, it seemed like the enemy was attacking every single person at church. Every person to a T was going through some sort of spiritual attack. And it was a storm of sorts that people were going through individually, you know. Um, in that case, you know, you, you want to say, well, we pray to God and ask God for protection, you know. Um, you know, here in Jonah's case, of course, they're asking, well, what can we do to stop the storm? Because uh, you're at fault and we're going through this. So I guess the, the question I'm asking is, what do you do to sort of get through the storm or to stop it? Because, you know, it's one thing to determine the reasons for it. You know, it's God's will, it's disobedience, it's whatever. You're Okay, so then what do you do when you're in it to try to get through it and stop it? You know, that's sort of the question. Yeah, our our narrative here is going to tell us clearly what not to do. <laughs> right? Man overboard. <laughs> right. So it's going to tell us what not to do. But I think that um, uh, there's there's an answer that we need to borrow now yeah. from, from the uh, immediate context that we haven't come to yet. But we also need to borrow from a distant text. So the immediate text that we haven't come to as yet is you need to obey God. Yeah. Um, you need to adhere to what he's told you to do. Yeah. You need to submit. And, and the truth of the matter is you need to realize that the wind and the wave are not God's only tools. Just because you're not in a place where there's water... You can have a storm that's not around you, but it still doesn't stop the storm in you. Yeah. And so obedience in that case is the key. I, I recall the hymn, trust and obey. Yeah. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus yeah. but to trust and obey. So you, you said a good point that it, the storm doesn't necessarily have to be around you, but in you. I know people that they're not going through a storm that's around them. They're just unsettled because they decided not to listen to what God's told them to do, and they're unsettled about that. They're not. There's no other issues in life. It's just kind of like they're not settled because they're not doing the obvious thing of following God. Um, so it's interesting. You, but you said uh, something else. There's a more distant text, yeah. and I think in, in this particular text, the sailors are certainly not thinking this distant text. But they ask a question, basically, their sense is, what can be done to appease this God? But right. again, hear the word that they're using, what can be performed? Right. For the sinner and for the believer, here's the distant text that is not uh, in this context, 
it's not what you do, right? but it is what has been done on your behalf. Okay, elaborate what you mean by that. In other words, Christ has propitiated. Right. He has, he has satisfied right. the Father on your behalf. And what you do is not performance-oriented or based. You turn to the one who has done for you right. on your behalf that which satisfies the Father and causes him to be at peace with you. In other words, the storm of life is stilled in the person of the Savior on behalf of the sinner. Isn't it interesting that Christ alludes to Jonah here? He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in, in the heart of the earth. You know, there's a throw Jonah into the ocean or to the sea to appease the God, so to speak, that's doing this. Put me into the grave to appease the Lord God, you know, of sin. It's the, the parallels there striking. Obviously, Jonah is disobedient prophet. And yes. Christ is the obedient prophet. But God's already been appeased. You don't have to sacrifice your, your child. You don't have to sacrifice anybody on the altar of anything because God has already been appeased. And so now we live um, after the real major storm between us and God has been settled. All right. So yes. let's, let's, um, let's, uh, let's continue. So, so in verse 12 it says, And he said to them, because they asked him in verse 11, What should we do that the sea may become calm for us? The sea was, and the sea was becoming even increasingly stormy. So they're talking... You can imagine that there's still a lot of chaos going on, and time. it seems like time's getting short. It's getting stormier and stormier and stormier. So he says to them in verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, and I will know on, the, I will know on account of me this great... For I know on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Now, i got to stop right there. I, I'm reading this, right? I'm reading this before. He says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. I'm like, come on, Jonah. Why don't you just get up on the ladder and just... <laughs> dive in yourself. Why do these people have to throw you in? You know, I mean, you ever think about that? I mean, don't you just just jump in? You know, Absolutely. but they have to throw him overboard. Absolutely, I. I, I know the reason why he says that, but we'll, we'll talk about that. But. I, I want to build um, um, the dramatic context for a moment. It's like a soap opera. Build the. It, it, there's intended to be this these these points of crescendo yes. of of intensification here right within the framework of the text literarily and so when they say that the sea be, may become calm for us first of all you have to remember yeah. that you're not looking at the queen mary boat here no or ship ships at this time are not massive yeah. in size right um secondarily what you're looking at is the sea is not just raging, but the statement that's used in the Hebrew text is that the sea may become silent. So there's not just the raging water and wind, there's a sound that's right. overwhelming. Right. So literally, you are to hear these men shouting right. in desperation with the pretext or the just, verses before, their their voices are being, being filled with fear fear and with adrenaline and 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 they are yelling and you can barely hear and the boat is being tossed and you have all of this ocean around them and they are easily the victims of this entire scene i i'm just imagining a couple there's a movie called the perfect storm yes and uh imagining that and also 
these Alaskan fishermen that often have to fish in really terrible weather. I, I'm imagining that kind of scenario that the, the, the water's washing over the, over the, the boat and they're in their, their yellow raincoats or whatever. And they're yelling because it's so loud. And so, and they're, they're having to hold on to their, to their railings or having to hold on and being tossed to and fro. And they're like, you know, and they're shouting, what, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? And there's, they're desperate. Right. Yeah. And so in the middle of this desperation, um, uh, the last thing that you expect to hear, right? It, it's like, what do we do? How do we handle this? How do we stop this? Right. The last thing that you expect to hear is, yeah, pick me up. <laughs> yeah. Pick, and uh, uh, and throw me in. Yeah, throw me overboard. I mean, that's so, the worst but, possible answer. Now, I know what the Hebrew text does here. I know what that it's, it's, it's playing on the idea of, of the idea of, of being thrown. God hurled or threw hurled or the threw a wind threw a wind their, that direction. They throw the cargo overboard. Now they're gonna throw him overboard as if to sort of just finish that uh, that the idea of just just tossing. In fact, the the word that's used for for Jonah where he was sleeping was the place of the cargo. In fact, what the Hebrew describes Jonah as one of the cargo now that they're gonna throw overboard. You know, and so it's as if to say they're. They're letting it go, but I don't know. It seems, and I know that's what the Hebrew text is doing. The Hebrew text is kind of like lightening the ship, lightening the ship. And finally, the one cargo that will make the difference, you know, is that that last piece of cargo called Jonah. Well, well let's let's just admit, John. Here. Yeah. Let's just admit. He's dead weight, right? <laughs> well, no. you're actually right on point yeah. because this disobedient prophet is the heaviest thing in the ship. Right. Right? Right. It, disobedience is oft the heaviest thing in the believer's life. And so you, you can, can toss oh, that's, every other you, thing off. Yeah, you can. Uh, you just, do you just read my mind, bro? Cause, because when you're disobedient, you can, you can get very religious. You can get all s- symbolic. You can, you can, you can do all kinds of stuff, but avoid the main thing you're supposed to do. And at, at the end of the day, that's the only thing left to do. You're stripped of everything else. You tried this, you tried that, and then you have one last thing that you've been avoiding that is now staring you in the face. And finally, that's the one that, that's the thing that you have to address is like, okay, I need to obey God, and then life will change. Yeah, but but let's get this clear: the sheer insensitivity, insensitivity of the prophet, right? Right. Your blood is going to be on these man's hands. Right. And by the way, the, the verses after it would indicate that they sensed that that would be the case because right. they're going to ask the eternal one not to allow that to be the case. Right. So how insensitive are you to to actually say, pick me up? As you said, your feet work just fine to carry you to the lowest area of the boat. Why can't they just carry you over the, the side of the bow? I, I don't think he wants to do this to himself. He's further attempting to victimize them by what he's suggesting or even demanding that they do with him. But you know what's interesting is that when when it's used, uh, the Hebrew text uses the same word to describe the the cargo that's thrown overboard. Um, that that um, it's useless, so to speak. Here's that useless cargo that was thrown overboard. Here's this useless prophet that's thrown overboard as well. Um, which we don't get to the point yet of, okay, 
why didn't Jonah just say, hey, guys, let's go back to the land? You know, he could have said, if it seems like there's something else God is wanting to do in Jonah, because even when they're going to say, they're actually going to ignore him at first, right? They're going to say, um, in verse 13, the men rode desperate. However, verse 13, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Here they hear what he says, throw me overboard, the sea will become calm. They say, they ignore that because they're thinking, no, let's try this out. If the goal was to get Jonah back to land, why didn't God allow them to just row back to land and say, here we go, Jonah, go back to port? It seems like God is doing something else in Jonah or something he wants to do in Jonah first. That does not involve just returning him back to land because nothing, if they return back to the land, nothing's changed in Jonah. Who knows? He goes, go, find another ship to go on. Maybe he would sit out there in, in, uh, at, at uh, wherever he's at in the, on the coast and still doesn't go anywhere. It seems like the point of, of his repentance doesn't happen. And it's like they're, they're repenting for him if they try rowing him back. That makes sense? They're, they're trying to turn back for him, whereas he doesn't want to turn back. And so it seems like their their attempt is obviously it's thwarted because God wants to give Jonah to that place where he says, "I'm okay, God, <laughs> you know, help me out here." But he's not there yet. So the storm gets stormier, and that attempt doesn't doesn't work. So I think it's interesting that you know they have to resort to throwing him over eventually. Well, John, I, I want to go back to eleven because. You have a game, dude. I'm trying ability. to go in the fast lane, bro. You're, I'm in verse 13. You, You're back, but, back but in verse 11. <laughs> we've got to go back, and, and here's why we have to go back. Because the intensification is, it's getting more and more stormy. Right. This is not a slight progression. This is a major progression. Right. And so listen to his his answer. His answer is because. The, the anticipation is this is only going to get worse. I right. mean, that's the, that's the intimation of the verse before. This is only going to get worse. Something has to be done. So by the time you get to his answer, listen to his answer. He says, this is his cure. Pick me up and throw me into the seat. Now let's stop for a moment. What is the author playing on here? First of all, the author it's playing on the topography. It, not just the geography, where he is, but the topography, the lay of the area that he's on. And in this particular narrative, um, the change in topography is not just locative or locational, it is also theological. Right. When Jonah is on right. land, yeah. it, it's an indication that things are at that moment right with God. Right. But when he is on sea, right. yum, right. it's an indication that things are wrong with God chaotic. and chaotic, right. right? Just like Genesis 1. Absolutely. Right. And so instead of saying, put me back in a place where I'm at peace with God, see, he says, toss me further right. into the chaos. So, not, so that tells you he's not ready yet. Absolutely. That's not. why he doesn't tell him, roll me back. That's my, that was my whole point, is that he, they tried to row him back. They tried to change him for him. He's not ready yet. Oh, he's absolutely not. In fact, he's so not ready that I do not want anyone to think, while we are entertaining this verse, that Jonah has some secret idea in his mind of a rescue. No. There is no such thing afoot. I mean, he's got he's to know. You're going to throw him in the ocean? Throw him in the middle of the sea here? Um, 
I'm done with. I'd rather, he's like, I'd rather die. Bingo. I'd rather drown than do God's will. That's his thought. The prophet is nothing short of suicidal at the hands okay. of the mariners okay. at this point. So, but you know, we've asked this question before. Man, if this was, if I was God, I'm sorry, I'll get somebody else to do my, my prophecy for me. I'll, I'll get this, I'll kick this guy back to the minor league or something, but... You know, but the fact that God doesn't give up on the guy, he has given up on himself, but God hasn't given up on him, right? The the people are like, uh, Lord, please forgive us for killing this man, but we're, we're trying to be obedient to what you think we think you're wanting to do, and here he is, you know, and, and he doesn't have any reservations of, okay, I'll go overboard, and that's it, and I, I won, God, I won. You couldn't, I was the one person you couldn't change, God. You know, that's, you know, perhaps what he's thinking. Yeah, I think, John, there's something more sinister afoot. I think that his attempt to be drowned, right? Because, of course, if you're looking at this storm, do you get the sense that you're going to live? If, no. if you get the sense that the boat is pulling itself apart, right? if the men are full of great fear, if the storm is intensifying, there's no way you could think you're going to live but not, through this. But not only that, let's say the storm does, he, maybe let's say that Jonah knows the storm's going to get calm, right? Let's say he just knows that, okay, you're, you're probably too far to swim back. You're probably, you know, just, you just know you're subject to creatures and, and rough waters and you're just, you're just, and maybe you're not wanting to swim back. Maybe you're in such a state that you're sort of content with being out there because you've just given up, you know? Yeah, but he knows he can't wade this water. No. I mean, he knows it. So he knows potentially to throw him in this water is a death sentence. Right. And by the way, that's exactly what he okay. wants. Okay. But his death sentence or his attempt is at the very self-same time theological in nature. Okay, let's just, let's, just, let's just kind of pause here because there are people who are in that state of mind that God is pursuing. And they've been... They've been saying, no God, no God, no God, no God, right? They're saying, hand off, right? They're, they're, they're saying um, they've so checked out of life. And so they, they would rather just just throw me into the, to the midst of the waters, you know, and let me die. And, and God is like, no, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And so I'm just thinking of here, if God does that to a prophet that is rebellious, how much more to somebody that really, really needs him, you know, somebody that really, really know, needs to know that he that he loves you and he cares for you and and uh, and he doesn't want you to dry in there in the sea. He wants to rescue you, you know, in a different context than Jonah. But the heart that is just, the person who has the heart that's just checked out, that's just given up, you know, here, he's, here Jonah's given up because he doesn't want to obey God. Some people have given up because they just, they just feel like there's nothing, there's no hope for them, you know? I'm just kind of just, and it's not the same context, but the idea of God approaching the person saying, you've given up and what you know and what you believe and, and, and any hope for any help, but God knows that you could be the one person that's, that's in the middle of the sea and God knows you're there. And he could be the one that, that sends the fish to bring you back to land, you know? Um, the point is, is, is thinking about a person who's maybe in that state of mind, you know, and, and just for Jonah to be in the state of mind, is kind of, whoa, you know? Yeah, I, I'd like to extrapolate on that in more sure, detail. Sure, in, in, in more, more eloquent. Uh, in, in, no, I don't know that that'll be the case, but I'd, I'd certainly like to entertain that a bit more in just a moment. By the way, do you, do you say schedule or schedule? Because <laughs> I know you want to be British. 
Is do you say right? appreciate? Do you say schedule? <laughs> it's because of the pronunciation. Actually, oh, you do you're, want to you're be messing British. with me. You do want to be you British. So okay, well, this, we let people in Britain. So I seek to go forward in the word of okay. God now. <laughs> <laughs> So, John, within this framework, he is literally dooming himself in his mind to a death sentence. Right. It's theological in its motive. His motive is, I want to stop God's plan to show mercy. Right. I want to prohibit God's purpose toward the Ninevites. And if he's going to do it, he's going to have to do it without me. Right. So his motive is somehow through my death, not sacrificially, but a blatant act of a high-handed fist in the face of God with my life's destruction will at least say to him, no, you won't get what you want out of me. Yeah. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Because, because his statement while theological and an attempt to stop God is suggesting, I don't want to cooperate with you. Right. And the option to not cooperate with you leads me into thinking that death would be better right. than that. Now, let me pause because there are those who doom themselves by either their own hand or the hand of others into a living death sentence right. or a literal death sentence. The living death sentence is you're breathing while you're dead. Right. Life is not moving forward for you, right? Simply because you are just stubborn in a mule-like way. You just have determined in your heart and your mind, I will not do what God says right. do. And God, it stops here and you can't do anything about it. Okay, we need to deal with those people and we'll deal with them right. in a little bit. But I want to pause now and now I'm going away from the context. And, and now I'm entertaining people who are hearing this, but they're saying, it's not that I don't want to do what God um, wants me to do. They're saying, I struggle with the thoughts of death because I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. um, I struggle with the thoughts of death because I just can't get rid of my storm. And I can't figure it out. We, we must admit, there are some storms that come because of chemical imbalance. Right. That's interconnected with the fall, right? There are some storms that come because of dark situations in life. Rape, abuse, mishandling at the hands of others, or extraordinary overwhelming guilt because of the presence of your sin before you and even though christ has forgiven you you can't forgive yourself i want to stop for you and i want to say the context is different but you do know that you can't cure this by throwing yourself further into the sea don't you you do know that Death may be trying to get you, but it hasn't gotten you. That's bad English, but you get the point. It may be pursuing you, but it has not been able to 
outrun and overtake you because it can't outrun those two blessings that God has caused to pursue you faster than any harm has been able to pursue you. Goodness and mercy are following you. I don't know why you were born with the struggle that you were born with, the depression, or I don't know why you went through what you went through that caused you to be draped in depressing circumstances that seem to just be like an eternal night in your life. But if you can believe it, there's hope in the night. Your night is not the first darkness that Christ has dealt with, and it won't be the last. But you cannot find a cure by throwing yourself overboard into the sea and trying to rid yourself of the self that Christ died for. So I want to tell you, that's not the answer. But for those individuals who are steeped in disobedience, you have to realize God is pursuing you for a reason. And your feet cannot carry you fast enough where you can flee from the presence of God. We know this with the prophet. And this is not a fluke. This is the truth of all men. Let me, let me show you something that you're throwing away. You're throwing away life. You can't give it. And you certainly can't regain it. It's too precious for that. For you to flippantly, casually try to destroy something that frankly you could not rebuild. You cannot try to play God in your own life. Stop where you are in your tracks. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. In this particular case, he's going to try and thwart the plan of God by throwing himself further into this chaotic sea. And of course, is there going to be a still to the storm? Yes, for the mariners. Yes, the sea will stop and a silence will come. But I'm afraid that the storm within the prophet is far greater than the storm that's on the outside of the prophet. This storm, this kind of storm, can only be stilled by bowing your knee before the one who alone has the power to say peace. Be still. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.